Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 98 today. If you want to turn in your Bible to the book of Psalms. Psalm 98, if you've got your Bible, turn there. If you don't have one, if you didn't bring one, or maybe you don't have one at home, there, we've got some copies in the back that we'd love for you to use today and take with you if you need one. Psalm 98. So we've just come out of four weeks of Psalm 106. And that psalm was just full of vivid reminders of Israel's sordid history. So I thought we could kind of use a breath of fresh air this week, to be perfectly honest. And the Lord led me to Psalm 98. Now, I, don't get me wrong. I, I think that there is, there is and was a clear and distinct purpose for Psalm 106. Uh, all of that history, they were being reminded of for a reason, right? So I don't want to give the impression that we should just uh, call these the bad parts of our past and ignore them. No, not at all. You've heard the saying that if we don't learn from our mistakes, we're doomed to repeat them. And Israel, unfortunately, seemed like they really hardly ever learned, and so they repeated their mistakes over and over. And this holds true both as individuals in your life, but also in the life of a nation. If we forget what's happened, we're doomed to repeat those things. So I I hope that in our time in Psalm 106 that it was abundantly clear that even though God's people are prone to wander, even though they are prone to fall, the beauty of his redeeming grace and steadfast love shone through that much brighter as a result. So we're going to move to Psalm 98. This is a messianic psalm to some degree. It's definitely a psalm of praise. Uh, there's no sleazy history brought up by the author here of Israel. There's no complicated stories to kind of unravel to really understand what he's getting at here. This is just like uninhibited praise, joyous celebration. Now, if you remember Psalm 88, so just 10 Psalms back, we looked at this a month and a half, two months ago, and this is that was a Psalm of lament, and it was really one of the darkest Psalms in all of Scripture, and we, we saw that there was a, a glimmer of light in the first couple of verses of Psalm 88, but the rest of that psalm was just darkness. In fact, that's how the psalm ends. He says, my companions have become darkness. And it was just this, like, um, almost a loss of hope. And we can identify with that at times. And, and so that, that's needed for us. But Psalm 98 is not like Psalm 88. If you look through, and I encourage you to look, look at this as we're going to read in just a moment, there's not a negative word in the whole psalm. There's not a negative thing. Even at the very end, when it talks about God's judgment, it's hope-filled. Like it's a celebratory thing that God is coming to judge the earth. And and so Psalm 98 celebrates God's incredible interaction with the world that he's created, and it demands a response from everything that lives in it. Here's the ideal picture of what this is going to look like. That's what Psalm 98 is. So like as with some of the other psalms that we have studied together, this one was written with intentionality, okay? Um, it, it wasn't like, uh, it's not written as a, an acrostic. We looked at one of those before. It's not in a complicated acrostic. This is what's called uh, written in strophes. So a strophe is a term that's most often used in poetry or in music. In poetry, it's basically just a synonym for the word stanza. So it's a group of the text that's kind of set apart with a specific uh, 
purpose in that section. So in music, a strophe is a synonym for a verse. Or like in, in Greek dramas from back long ago, a strophe was oftentimes a, a section of music that a choir would sing as they passed from one side of the stage to the other to allow you know acting and stuff to take place. So that's kind of what the history of a strophe is. And in verse or in, in chapter ninety eight here, there are three strophes that we see, each of them having exactly three verses in them, which totals the nine verses of the chapter. So as we read through these, I want to point out verses one through three. Strophe number one, they give the grounds for praise. Strophe number two and verses four through six describe the method of praise. And then the last one in verses seven through nine call all creation to join in that praise. So let's read chapter 98 together and then quickly ask God's blessing on his word again. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He's remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Verse 7, let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Father, uh, please give your blessing to this word. Lord, mine mean nothing. Yours are everything. And so we need to hear from you. Thank you for sharing it with us now. Uh, Lord, by your work through the Spirit in your people here, Make it make sense to us, Lord. Make us different as a result of this text, your inspired word given to us today. In Christ's name, amen. So I want to just tackle them one at a time. So three strophes, three verses each. So we'll tackle them three verses at a time. The first one in verses one through three, they give the grounds for praise. So why? Why are we praising? Well, If you kind of peek ahead, the second strophe talks about the methods of praise, how to praise the Lord with instruments and stuff like that. Um, Those are things that only human beings can do. I've never seen a dog play a trumpet. Maybe maybe you have. I'd like to see that video. But um, I've never seen an animal play a guitar or something like that. Only human beings can enter into praise the way that the second strophe talks about. Okay? So we have to understand the first strophe that talks about the grounds of praise in relation to human beings, to God's people specifically. So they are the intended recipient of these verses. In verse 1 it says, Sing to the Lord a new song. So when he says this, I don't think that the author here is telling frogs to sing a different song than the croaks. And I don't think he's telling moose to sing a different song. Do moose... What sound does, don't tell me what sound a moose makes. I'll, I'll Google it later. I'm sure that'll be fun. I don't think he's telling rivers to write new music. 
That's not what he's saying. He's telling God's people to write songs of praise that are then to be sung by his people. Now, don't get me wrong. We're going to talk about, just later in this chapter, how all of creation sings his praise and the things that they do and were designed to do. But this is God telling his people to sing praises to his name. So this tells us that music, this, the, the written word to be sung, is a right response to recognizing who God is and what he's done. Music is good. This is why we take the time to sing in church. It's not just because it's pretty necessarily, although it is. It's because it was commanded of God. It's right to do. Now, the marvelous things that God has done have been done by him alone. That's something else that this chapter takes into account. It's not Israel's wonderful obedience or their beauty or the size of the nation or any of that stuff. It's God's faithfulness. It's his steadfast love, his power that has won them the victory and has won the victory. It says his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. I kind of like the King James version better here. It says his right hand, his holy arm has brought him victory. I like the way that that emphasizes his victory. Verse 2 says, not just a few people have seen it. Not just one part of the world has seen the victory of God. Who has? Everyone. Everybody has seen the victory of God. He's revealed it. He's made known his salvation to all nations, to everybody. It's visible. Then verse 3 says that Israel has seen his love and his salvation, his righteousness, his faithfulness, but it's gone even further than them. It's gone beyond just the nation of Israel, just the Jews. The ends of the earth, it says, have seen the love of God and the faithfulness of God. And then what do people do as a response to seeing the victory and the salvation of God? Well, they worship. They sing Look at verse 4, the beginning of the second strophe. They make a joyful noise to the Lord. This now begins to describe the method of praise. So the grounds of praise are God has, is strong. He is the king. He has won the victory. And for those things, we praise, we worship. Now, how do we do that? Well, now the second strophe brings that into light. How do you praise the Lord? You don't have to answer me verbally here, but how do you praise the Lord? Think about singing in particular. How do you praise the Lord? Do do you sit very quietly and like maybe just lip sing the music? Do you um, sing but just really softly in hushed voices? Do you maybe stand, but do you stand as stiff as a board with no movement except your mouth? Sometimes we do, and sometimes we're called to a more reserved, respectful, outward appearance as we sing, certainly. But that's not the way these verses talk about it. Not at all. I mean, look at the methods that are used in verses 4, 5, and 6. He says, make a joyful noise. Break forth into joyous song. Sing praises, verse 4, verse 5. Sing praises with the lyre or a harp. And the sound of melody or your voices. Verse 6, make a joyful noise with trumpets and the sound of a horn or um, a cornet or a a curved horn. 
Now, if, if I told and if you told a kid to sing a joyous song, do you think it will be a quiet song? I don't, I don't, not my kids anyway. I don't think so. If you told a kid to make a joyful noise, what are they going to do? They're not, they're not just going to sit here and say, yay. They're going to be loud. Kids already want to do that. But if you say, hey, make a joyful noise, they're going to be loud. They're going to let you know that they are happy. Guys, this is what the text is telling God's people that they're going to do. This is the response of God's people. Now, I don't think that these instruments that are listed, the, the harp and the, the trumpet and the horn, I don't think those are prescriptive in the sense that like that's all you can use in worship. Here's what I think is really going on in these verses. I think that the psalmist is saying that when a person clearly sees the goodness of God, they, they're going to grab anything that's close by that makes noise and use it in worship. There, there's an old sheep's horn. Grab it. Blow into it. Let's worship the Lord. Has anybody ever heard what one of those sounds like? Is it worshipful or is it just loud? It's just loud, right? I don't even, I'm sure there's a note to it, but um, this is what they were using, along with voices and harp and all that stuff. You know, you got a, you, you found a hollow stump and a stick, hit it. Make noise. Use your, if you don't have anything else, use your vocal cords. Use the gift that God has given you. Let me say it another way. I think the psalmist here is saying that when, when God's glory and goodness are clear and visible, nothing should keep us from worshiping Him. Even if we have instruments or not. If we have an instrument, man, we should use it well for the glory of God. If you don't, Hey, use your voice as best you can. Even if you might describe it as nothing more than a joyful noise, do it. If it's a response to God's power and victory, it is lovely and it is beautiful. And he wants us to sing. God cares more about what's in your heart than the particular note that comes out of your lips. Now, don't get me wrong. We strive for excellence in our worship by training ourselves and tuning things and as perfecting as we can. Um, But worship is more than just hitting every note perfectly. It's more than just trying to be on pitch every time. Because the reality is that we could go hire a group of musicians who know nothing of the Lord and come in and they could play these songs even better than we could. But would that really be worship? It, it couldn't be because their hearts are not engaged. They wouldn't mean the words that they're singing. And so verse 6 says, again, make a joyful noise before the king because he is worthy of our singing and because he is worthy of our music and because he's worthy of the hard work that we put in to getting better at our instruments for the glory of God. I love how... Charles Spurgeon challenges us here. He says, man's voice is at its best when it sings the best words in the best spirit to the best of beings. Do we sing enough unto the Lord? May not the birds of the air rebuke our dull and ungrateful silence. So, 
are the birds outdoing us in worship? I, I don't think so here at Ramsey Creek, but it's a good question to reflect on. Because the reality is, and as we move into this third strophe in verse 7, the reality is that nature does sing back to the Lord. Psalm 19, right? All of creation displays His praises, gives His praises. The seas, verse 7, the seas and everything in them are going to make a little bit of noise. They're going to roar. They're going to thunder. This is, it's almost like a thunder clap, like it's loud. Now, maybe some of you adults may feel this way too, but I know when we hear a loud thunderclap, right as, you know, bedtime is happening, we get kids running into our room because they're afraid. That loud noise, it kind of takes you, like, off guard, and you know you're not the biggest thing there, right? There's something bigger that really could cause some damage if we're not careful. And so the sea and everything that's in them is going to roar in response to the Lord. This word roar or thunder has the idea of being agitated or stirred up, if you will, but not not in a negative sense at all. It means that creation, everything that God has made, specifically here, the seas, they're going to respond. They're moved to respond to the righteous judgment of the Lord. The goodness of God. Verse 8 similarly says that the rivers or streams are going to clap their hands. The hills will sing for joy. I forgot to put this in my notes. There's a part of the English language that this is. Does anybody remember what it is where... Physical acts, human things are given to inanimate objects. Anybody remember that? I'm really hoping that you do because I can't remember it. Thank you. That's it. Personification. So the author is personifying, like he's saying, it's almost like if the rivers had hands, they're going to clap them. They're going to put them together. If the hills had voices, had mouths, they're going to shout for joy. Things that only normally people are described as doing, creation is going to respond to the goodness of God by doing. So the sea, the earth, the rivers, the hills, they're all instructed to play their part in the great anthem of praise here. The psalmist almost seems to be like issuing these commands to them, like, hey, do these things. And creation seems ready to obey. And the neat part about it is, and we won't go too far into this, but the neat part about it is, in this unique and glorious anthem of praise back to the Creator, every creature has its part to play. Every created thing has a note to sing or a way to worship. There's a negative side of this too. Romans 8, 18 through 23. You can go ahead and turn there. Starting with verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. All these groans will be turned to praise and worship before the King, the Lord. Revelation chapter 19 verse 6 kind of gives us a glimpse of what this glimpse of what this will look like John there says then i heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude and listen to this like the roar of many waters like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out hallelujah for the lord god almighty reigns so what will praise and worship in heaven sound like it's, it's backwards. It's backwards personification. What was described like clapping, the sound of roar of waters, the sound of thunder, those things that are attributed to nature then are going to be the sound of what God's people sing and make worship to in heaven. So why? Why is this the case? Why does all of creation join in loud and joyful worship before the king. Well, back in verse 9 of Psalm 98, it tells us, because he comes to judge the earth. That's the reason why we sing for praise, why why it sounds like roaring waters and clapping of thunder. Now, if that's all that it said, like the, the judgment of God on the earth, that's gonna, that seems like it could maybe not be a real positive thing at times. Right? It might not be a real joyful result if God were to come and to judge. If all you knew of God was that He was coming to judge the world and everything and everyone in it, it might be a frightful thing more than a joyous thing. I know my sinful heart, and if the Creator God is coming to judge, I'm in fear. But verse 9, thankfully, doesn't stop there. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. So lest we think that God's judgment would be unfair somehow, we can be certain that it's going to be perfect. It's true judgment. It's right. God's judgment is so different than what we see from other people who live on earth here with us. This becomes especially clear when we hear news of some of the decisions being made in our country today. You start thinking, that judgment doesn't seem very sound to me. God's judgment is different from what people on earth that live alongside of us, what we see from them earthly human judgment and it is critically (laughs) and just revealing over and over now critically flawed and lacking but that's not the kind of judgment that's coming from the king the true king that's not the kind of judgment that we see he will judge the word the world with righteousness now this means that god is coming to judge and rule with perfect justice He's not swayed one way or the other by bribes or by your behavior or by how good you look or any of that stuff. He executes perfect judgment. It is pure. His justice is undefiled. It's perfect. 
Now, verse 9 also says that he's going to judge the people of the earth with equity. This word means evenness, straightness, equality. Now, that is a word that we hear a lot nowadays, equality. Hmm. The world is constantly crying out for justice, for fairness, for equality. It's not wrong to hope for that, brothers and sisters. The problem is that our versions of those things are so painfully flawed, we don't understand the truth. And so when we cry out for equality, the equality that you and I have in mind is not God's equality. Certainly not the world's equality. What we think is fair, what we might look at as equal doesn't usually mirror God's definitions of those things. But be assured, he is coming to bring equality himself because he's the only one that can do it perfectly. His word is the only thing that can give us perfect truth. The whole world, the whole earth is going to rejoice because God comes to bring the earth from sin and sorrow to salvation and joy. That's what the gospel does. It reveals our sin, but doesn't just leave us in it. It moves us to redeeming grace and salvation in Christ. Now, go back to the beginning of the chapter with me for just a minute. Chapter 98 in Psalms. I want to just quickly look at this through a slightly different messianic lens for a moment. I'm not going to tell you to replace the word salvation in these verses to Yeshua, even though that's kind of the word that's there. It means salvation. But let me show you why I think that I would classify this as a messianic psalm. In its immediate context here, the psalmist is praising God for saving his people from destruction, from other nations, from themselves so often. Uh, the psalmist is praising God for the deliverance from the Egyptians and their history for leading them in the desert, uh, any number of things the, the psalmist here is referring back to. But I think these words, as so many in Scripture, also have future implications. So to help us understand this better, there's a, a couple verses in Isaiah 52 I'd like us to look together. Look at together. Isaiah 52. I want to read verses 8 through 10. And as we do, I just want you to, you know, if you've got your finger in Psalm 98, just compare verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 98 with Isaiah 52, 8 through 10. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Consider that numerous verses in the New Testament speak of Jesus as sitting at the right hand of God. That he, say it another way, he is God's right-hand man. The Lord made him known, it says in 98. 
At his birth, he made him known. He revealed him to the nations, and then he revealed his righteousness in the sight of all on the cross, didn't he? Jesus is the Word made flesh. He is the Word that always accomplishes exactly what the Lord ordains. It's not return void. And it says that He is going to come to judge the earth and the people when He comes again. This is going to be a praiseworthy and joyous occasion. Like full of joy. His creation, His people will be full of joy because He does it perfectly. His justice isn't coming tainted like ours would. It's pure and undefiled. It's true. Every person is going to get a fair shake. Every person is going to be treated the same. No one's going to be treated unfairly. But here's the thing. Everyone without Christ, they're not going to think it's unfair that they're going to be judged according to their work. It'll be exactly right that God would do that. They will be judged according to their own work if they don't know Christ. The, the sorrowful part of that all is that their work falls short. It always does. It always will. Jesus is, according to John fourteen six himself, he is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. And no one gets to the Father through him, except through him. So if you have not trusted in his work on your behalf, then you will be judged according to your own work. And you'll be sorry that you are. But if you have trusted in Christ, your work isn't judged when you die. It's not a 50-50 thing between you and Jesus, like, well, I'll add my stuff to his stuff, and then together it'll make it, we'll make it. That's not what salvation is. I either trust his sacrificial death, or I trust in my own effort. So, Jesus is the right hand of God. He is the salvation of the Lord, and He is, therefore, worthy to be praised with every instrument, with every voice, and with every song that we could muster. He's worthy to be praised. The question I want to leave us with this morning is, are you joining in that song of the redeemed? The songs that God's people sing with joy and truth? Are you joining in them or are you just trying to sing songs with your lips that mean nothing in your heart? Remember, God cares more about what's in your heart than the notes that are coming out of your lips. God has worked salvation in Christ for all who believe. Every person who believes will be saved and the joyous part, the thing that stirs up praise not only in his people but in the world the created world the thing that brings it about is that it's for us god has given salvation inside of all if you would believe it's yours my my hope is that you would believe today if you have not already and you can do that sitting in your seat you can call on the lord and be saved as we sing our final song and band can start making their way up this morning, as we sing this song in reflection, I'd encourage you to cry out to the Lord. And if you aren't quite sure what that means or what that might look like, I'll be standing right here. I'd love to talk with you more. You can grab me afterwards. But those of you who have been saved by the blood of Christ, I'd encourage you, sing with conviction, with your heart, and care 
little about the note that comes out of your mouth. Because to the Lord, it is a pleasing sound. Let's pray together. Lord, it's good that you can interpret even our groanings sometimes. Um, Lord, and if, if my friends who are listening are anything like me, there, there are certainly times when I just don't feel like singing, when I don't feel like giving praise. Maybe it's been a hard week. Maybe it's been a fight with a spouse. Maybe it's been the death of a loved one. Whatever the case might be, Lord, sometimes we just don't feel like singing and, and you've given us a framework for that. And we think of Psalm 88 and how you're even near to the brokenhearted. Even in the darkness, you run to us. And, and so, Lord, we thank you for that, Lord. But um, may it quickly change from uh, resistance to obedience and to, to joyful noises, Lord. Uh, may the birds not outdo us in praise this morning, Lord. May your name be lifted high. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.